Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to spend time in your word today. May your Holy Spirit be in this place. Teach us what you want us to know. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's good to be with you this morning. You know, the, the Restoration Group is a group that I really appreciate your willingness to stand for truth. Um, you know, I, I have uh, an, an unusual um, feeling when I come on the Loma Linda campus. I recognize that I'm probably a, in many ways, to some at least, uh, a religious conservative and a, and a political liberal. And I'm in a, an environment that is politically conservative and religiously liberal. Thank you. So it means I'm, I'm in conflict on Sabbath and I'm in conflict all week. You know, I've, it's, I don't ever so I never really know where I fit. But I'm glad that in the in the household of faith, there's room for divergence and there's room for diversity and there's room for diversity of thinking and thought. This morning, I want to spend some time talking to you about the wildness of God. The wildness of God. You know, many of us postmodern followers of Jesus, we have decided to offer Christ what we deem to be reasonable service. We restrain ourselves from any radical or illogical or potentially harmful adherence to our spirituality. And we as a group have generally opted for a safe, no risk kind of religion. We choose a safe God who would never place us at risk. We want smooth sailing, calm seas, and placid harbors. But my friends, I've come to let you know this morning that you cannot play it safe and get to heaven. The work of salvation is fraught with perils, challenges, and battles. To save us, sometimes God needs to, to use the vernacular, get in our chest. He needs to oppose us. He needs to shake us up out of our complacency in order to get us into the kingdom. The work of perfecting our characters will require each of us to walk through some difficult pathways. And finally, to make up our minds that God, even the wild God of Scripture, can indeed be trusted. Wild God, I say. Yes, I do. You see, the God of Revelation is wild to the extent that he is indeed sovereign, that he is bold. This God is unconventional. He is brutally honest with us, and he is passionately devoted to our salvation at any cost, any cost to him and any cost to you. While never violating our free will, he providentially will lead us from earth to glory. God is wild and that he cannot be confined to the narrow expanses of our mental constructs. Any God that you can figure out, box and package and place on a shelf, is not a God worth worshiping. Any God that our feeble minds can wrap around and understand in thoroughness, who becomes so predictable and so tame that we can rest assured that he will never get in our way. 
you're not serving the same God that I serve. You need to know that God interposes in the lives of his people. He guides and directs. The Bible says he sets up kings and takes them down. And there are countless examples to the word of God where God interposes in the lives of his believers and leads and directs and guides frequently in places and directions it was not their intention to go. So just what does this type of God expect from you and I? Well, I wish I could bring you good news, but he expects everything. And that's, that really is what makes us fearful to stop and really listen to his demands. We are fearful that he may ask from us some unspeakable demand that we are not now or ever prepared to give him. My roommate in college and I, we used to joke about this. I, I switched my major in my freshman year from medicine to theology. And so I would go off to my religion classes and my roommate went off to his science classes and I would come back in the evening and I would tell him things about what I had learned in class today. I'd say, hey man, did you know so-and-so and so? And he finally one day just stood up and said, would you be quiet? I said, what's the problem? Because every time you come in and tell me what you learned, it's something I don't want to do. I don't want to hear it. Just keep it to yourself. God frequently comes into our lives in ways and, te- and leads us places that we never intended to go. My wife made a decision as a young woman, looking at her sisters and being the daughter of a minister. She said, there are two types of people I will never marry. I will never marry a minister and I will never marry a doctor. (laughs) And in one bad decision, she got both. God I believe, has a sense of humor. He is sovereign. He leads us the way he wants to lead us. He is wild. You can't box him up and say, this is what he is. You follow him. He doesn't follow you. He's no genie in a box that you rub, and then he pops up and answers and gives you your three wishes. More likely, we're the ones that need to pop up and give him his wishes. Somebody ought to say amen this morning. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual act worship we have been asked to give our bodies as living sacrifices jesus does not need you dead but alive he is looking for living sacrifices sacrifice that is committed even unto death but that is willing to die to self every day he demands a willingness to be martyred but he is more concerned about our living death our living sacrifice that will culminate one day in eternal life for us You know, an unknown writer once penned these words. He said, some folks say there's nothing they wouldn't do for the Lord, that nothing is too good for their Lord, that there is nothing in their lives that they cannot have, that God cannot have, and nothing is about what God gets. So just how far is God prepared to go to save us? And just how much 
are we prepared to give up? Well, this morning, I want us to briefly take a look at a story of sacrifice in the Bible, the story of Abraham. We would discover in looking at his story that God is not interested in halfway, almost play it safe followers. He is looking for radical, illogical sometimes, don't know what will happen next kind of faith. Those who are willing to step out in trust of God. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, we find these words. Genesis 22 and verse 2. You know the story, very familiar. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will command you to go. What kind of God is this? What kind of test must this be to take your only son, the son you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is the same God who commands, thou shalt not kill. It's the same God who promised, your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. And from him, your descendants will be as the sands of the ocean. So Abraham now is faced with an awful dilemma. If he obeys God, he loses his only son by his own hand. He is caught between the apparent contradiction between the promise of God and the command of God. And suddenly there's no way out, nowhere to run and hide. His safe stained glass one day a week God suddenly became unpredictable, dangerous, and unreasonable. It took three days for Abraham and Isaac to reach the mountain at Moriah. And every day he agonized about taking the life of his son. Can you imagine what Abraham was thinking on those nights? He may have thought, when I go back home and see Sister Sarah, and she asked me, where's Isaac? What am I going to tell her? He was sacrificed. Well, who sacrificed him? I did. Now, I can, I've been married for 31 years. I can well imagine what happens when, in the conversation with my wife if I forget to take out the trash. Let alone the kind of conversation we would have if I sacrificed her only son. Because the Lord said so. Abraham was in a terrible, terrible place. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53, you find these words. Abraham did not seek to excuse himself from doing the will of God. During that three days journey, he had sufficient time to reason and to doubt God. If he was disposed to doubt. He might have reasoned that slaying his son would cause him to be looked upon as a murderer, a second Cain, that it would cause his teachings 
to be rejected and despised. This is not a great move for a seminary graduate. And thus destroy his power to do good for his fellow man. He might have pleaded that age should excuse him from obedience. But the patriarch did not take refuge in any of these excuses. You know, Satan today attempts to give us many, many excuses for why we can disobey the plain command of God. Let's talk about some of those excuses for a minute. A young woman seeking to be married says, I know that my fiance doesn't love the Lord, but I can change him. Another excuse I hear, God doesn't really expect me to be celibate, does he? How about, this is an emergency. I'll pay my tithe next week. I know I shouldn't gossip, but girl, I really don't have time for daily worship today. I can worship God right here at home. Why do I need to go to church? But Abraham was too busy trying to do the will of God to make excuses and not be obedient. I'm sure that Satan attempted to make Abraham believe that he was somehow deceived or even deluded, that God would not require him to do what was forbidden in his word. But experience had taught Abraham to trust in the voice of God. He knew he was not deceived even if he was confused. My friends, when God places his command on your life, you don't need to understand God to obey God. By the way, it may come as news to you, God is not interested in my opinion regarding his will. Now, God, you know, I, I know you want me to go do this. Can, can we talk about this for a minute? And, and the answer that comes from heaven is no. There's really nothing to say about this. You just need to go do what I've asked you to do. I've raised two sons. My youngest one, son will turn 20 next month. My oldest one is uh, 29, will turn 30 in two months. And I can tell you as a father of, of sons, early in their lives, I had to get my bluff in. Because they're both bigger than I am now. My oldest son is a police officer. He's always armed. Even when he's off duty, he's, he's got, you know, this is a kid who I, we never bought him a toy gun. Now he's surrounded by heavy artillery. He's got assault weapons in his, in his car that he has to take in. You know, the police cars now have them and shotguns and he carries a gun and he's got a riot helmet in the trunk. And, and then he comes home and he's in plain clothes and I, I reach out to hug him, and I'm hitting hard steel on his belt. I'm saying, okay, I'll just uh, shake your hand. That's okay. And I had to get my bluff in early so that they understood the meaning of obedience early in their lives. So that now when I'm old and feeble and I say, I need you to do something, I don't have to duck and worry that they're going to hurt me. Early in the Christian experience, God wants us to learn what it means to obey. 
Because as life goes on, when the heat of battle comes, when there are orders that come from heaven to you that are, that are life and death in significance and importance, he does not need his people then trying to reason with him about what he wants. There's nothing safe about Abraham's God. But there was nothing safe about Abraham's faith. Abraham was called to a life-defining decision, to an illogical, dangerous moment in time. He was living in the eye of the hurricane of God's providence. But Abraham's faith allowed him to rise above doubt. His faith took him where his sight could not go. Clearly, there was no logical explanation for God telling him, to sacrifice his son. What could Abraham depend on? What he could depend on is that the voice that gave him the illogical and irrational command was the voice of God. A voice he had come to know and recognize through agonizing nights of prayer and study. A voice he had learned to understand in times of peace and in times of insecurity. He knew the voice of God because of his relationship with God. And when God spoke to him, even though he did not understand what God meant, he knew he had to obey. When God pulled me out of a very comfortable civilian life and said, I want you to go to Loma Linda, I looked at my wife. We prayed about it. We said, we have no idea what God wants us in Loma Linda for. But we came. Not for fame, not for glory, out of obedience. I talked to a friend of mine this past week. We were talking about a pastor, John Nixon. Some of you may know of John. And John just recently accepted a call from the pastor of Oakwood College Church to be the pastor of Southern Missionary College Church. All of his colleagues looked at John as if he had somehow been smoking crack. And said, John, what are you thinking? You're leaving the Mecca of black Adventism. Oakwood College Church pastor to be the pastor of Southern University, college, church. This is like leaving, if I could use a rather crude analogy, this is like leaving the Black Panther Party and becoming chairman of the John Birch Society. <laughs> Not that there's any re recrimination. I'm saying culturally, these are two completely different cultures, two completely different ways of worshiping. And John, when we, when we found out from John, he said, you know what? I found out that some of the pastors, some of the elders at that church had been watching my tapes on the Internet, had listened to my preaching, had decided that it was a message they wanted to hear. And so they did the most unusual, illogical thing. They called John to be pastor of their church. And John, in, in response not to their request, but in response to what he believed was the voice of God, resisted everything his colleagues told him was the right career move and said, I must follow Jesus. How many of you 
are prepared to go where God tells you to go, irrespective of where your friends tell you is logical to go. How many of you are prepared to do what God has commanded of you, even when others say, how could you? And even when you don't understand what God is trying to accomplish. When God answers prayers, he answers prayers so uniquely that he can answer the prayers of 5,000 people in the same act, even though they all prayed for different things. A wonderful example of God's answer to prayer is when you look at what God did for, I think it was Jer uh, um, Jericho. Who's that Jericho? Joshua. Thank you. Joshua prayed. He said, Lord, we got to fight this battle. We got to win this battle. I need you to stop the sun in the sky so that we can fight long enough in the day to win the battle. God answers Joshua's prayer in the opposite way he prayed it. Because God knew he couldn't stop the sun. The earth revolves around the sun. The sun wasn't moving. It was the earth that was moving and it was revolving on its axis. So to answer his prayer to stop the sun, God held the earth. And said, one day, son, you'll, you'll study some physics and you'll know, but I'm going to hold the earth. So even when our prayers are misguided in terms of technical accuracy, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and interprets them to God so that he understands what us silly people are trying to say. Lord, forgive him. He doesn't know anything about science. He came from seminary. So he held the earth on his axis so that it would not revolve and the battle could be won. There is nothing safe about God. Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham is in the middle of this dilemma. He now must sacrifice his son and he's not quite sure what to do. But in Hebrews eleven nineteen, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reflects back on what was going on in Abraham's mind. And it says, Abraham reasoned, Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Ladies and gentlemen, Abraham believed that if he killed Isaac, that God would resurrect him in order to keep his promise. He had so much confidence and faith in the promise of God, he was willing to obey the command of God that would have seemed to have completely obliterated that promise and trusted God to raise him back from the dead. What kind of faith is that? What kind of God would even require that of his people? Raiden, who wrote these words, said, when you have nothing left but God, then you become aware that God is enough. Corey Tinboom wrote these words. She says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So Abraham raised the knife above his obedient son to take his life. And when he was fully committed when the blade had reached the height of his apex in ascent, when he was prepared to plunge that knife into the, the heart of his only son, 
God called out to him, Abraham, just in case he didn't hear him, Abraham, he called him twice. Do not lay a hand on that boy. You see, Abraham had passed the test. He trusted enough to sacrifice all that he had, all that he treasured in order to obey God. God provided another sacrifice, a ram in the thicket, a symbol, as it were, for Christ being our sacrifice. Abraham was so impressed with what God had done, he renamed that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Perhaps the most important lesson for our times is to understand that God is indeed Jehovah Jireh and that he indeed does provide. I think I told you the story when I was uh, on military duty. I got mobilized when I was in reserves to Operation Joint Endeavor. And I was in, assigned in Germany and my wife was home by herself and she went to try to get some exercise one morning. She was walking through a park near where our house was and I wasn't there to protect her, but I was praying for her. And as she was walking, she saw a man who was stalking her. And she looked around and realized there was nobody out there but her in that part of the park. And so she started trying to walk a little faster. And the man started coming towards her, trying to angle to, to meet her. And she began to pray, Lord, help me. And out of nowhere, two German shepherd dogs appeared and walked beside her, one on the left and one on the right. The man saw her and the dogs, turned and walked away. And after she had gotten to another part of the park where she was safe, the dog just ran off. Now, I don't know if those dogs were angels or angels sent, but what I do know is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. Time and time and time in your lives, you can look back and watch the hand of God's providence. I got to tell you, when you are in, in, in God's will, there's no feeling like it on earth. Being God's child is more than a job. It's an adventure. You have no idea where God wants to lead you. And if you are open to his leading, he can do great things through you. If you close him off in a box and keep him somewhere safely so he doesn't interfere with your precious plan. Those plans may or may not succeed, but they will never be what God called them to be. It'd be a tragedy to spend a life doing wonderful good deeds, only to hear God at the end of your life say, those were great things, but how come you didn't do what I asked you to do? Perhaps that lesson of God is Jehovah Jireh is a lesson that we need to take away from this place today. You see, in these final days, Satan will do all he can to assert his authority and to cause us to doubt God. He will threaten your job. He will threaten your marriage. He will threaten your health. He will attempt to separate you in any way he can from Jehovah Jireh. He wants you somehow to believe that you are isolated, that you are on your own, and that you have been abandoned. But that is a lie. God never forsakes his people. Even when his commands are not clearly understood by us, even when they confuse us, 
He is in charge. And if we will just let go, sometimes letting go of our, our higher order functions long enough to hear and listen, let go of all those barriers of, of wisdom and knowledge and learning that have, that have come into our minds, say, God, what is it you're trying to say? We will recognize that his plan is perfect for our lives. What does God want from us? He wants everything we have and he wants everything we are. He wants to strip us of all pretense, games, fear, unconfessed sin and excuses. He wants living sacrifices. And this, according to our text, is our spiritual act of worship. Singing songs and lifting holy hands and singing praises are fine in their place. But in the quiet, consistent surrender of the life to a dedicated service of a God, that is really what worship is all about. Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This mind renewal can only take place through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God. You cannot renew your mind in Chaucer. You cannot renew your mind in Shakespeare. If you want your mind renewed, it has to be through God's word and by his Holy Spirit. The only way it happens, you can't be a desperate housewife and hope to have a renewed mind. The truth, as it is in Oprah, Dr. Phil, Dr. Ruth, or any of the TV prophets of prosperity will not renew your mind. But when your mind is transformed by the power of God's word, by the power of his spirit, then it says you will understand the perfect will of God for your life. If you are confused about what God is trying to tell you, you have to find yourself alone in his word, on your knees in prayer and ask his Holy Spirit to give you light. And you may have to ask repeatedly because God is going to test to see just how badly do you want to know what I have for you. There's no feeling on earth that compares to being in the will of God and knowing what that will is for your life. So this morning, as I close, you need to know there is a sovereign God that to the untrusting soul may appear wild, but this God is seeking your service. This God is seeking your commitment this God is seeking your trust. Are you living in conformity, in conformity to the values of the world? Or are you truly naked before God in total surrender of your ambitions, of your rights, of your entitlements, of your ease and comfort? Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial has nothing to do with the absence of prosperity. The absence of prosperity means you're broke. Being broke doesn't mean that you're in self-denial. 
Self-denial is the willingness to abandon your right to yourself, your life, your present, your plans for your future, and to walk in the will of God. My wife said, I'll never marry a minister or a doctor. She got both. We once said we never want to live in the Inland Empire. We now reside here in Redlands. I thought maybe if I said to God, I never want to be rich. <laughs> that suddenly funds would just come out of nowhere. But you can't fool God. So when I said I never want to be rich, God said, Amen. You know, Abraham was not the first or the last person to confront this sovereign God, this wild God. Moses met him at a burning bush when God said, take off your shoes because the ground upon which you stand is holy. Samson found this sovereign God in the dark captivity of his sinfulness. Where he found himself now with a crew cut instead of the long locks and without power. Daniel found this sovereign God when he found himself in a lion's den. And instead of being lion's food, he used lions as a pillow and slept quietly through the night. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found this sovereign God in an air-conditioned conference in the middle of a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar encountered this sovereign God after he was through grazing on grass in a field as a crazy man, as a beast. And when God brought him back to his right mind, he said, now who is God? And Nebuchadnezzar worshipped the true God. He spat in the eyes of a blind man so he could finally see God for himself. Saul met this sovereign God on the Damascus road when he knocked him off of his horse. That same Paul and Silas met him in a midnight prayer meeting in a jail one night. And their chains fell off and the doors of the jail fell down. Because he is sovereign. Because he is God. And this God, this wild God, is still trying to get our attention because he wants to transform our lives. He pursues us because he loves us. One old preacher referred to Jesus as the hound of salvation, who once he has your scent, will track you to the ends of the earth in order to save your soul. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. How truly valuable we are. We have been purchased by the blood of the lamb. Jesus went on a cross and died just to have a right to reclaim that which was lost. We have been ransomed from death, ransomed from sin. We were held hostage and captive and Jesus paid the price to bring us out. You think a God who would ransom everything for you? would then abandon you to your own devising? That he would not have a plan for your life? A plan for your future? A calling to direct you? 
because he wants to use you and the great controversy to reach out to others who are themselves still in bondage and captive? How long will we stand between two opinions? If God be God, then serve him. And if God is not God, go and do what you want to do. I'm amazed at how many Christians remain in the church miserable. They want to do just enough to keep out of hell, but not any more than they need to, to be actually happy in Jesus. And so they live these kind of marginal spiritual lives, asking, Lord, how little must I do to be saved? Anyone who asks that question doesn't understand the joy of salvation. Salvation is not about doing works in order to be saved. It is about rejoicing in our salvation and out of gratitude, we serve God. I don't serve him to be saved. I serve him because I am saved. I don't do righteousness in order to merit God's favor. I can't not, I cannot merit his favor. In fact, grace in a, by definition is unmerited favor. You can't be good enough for God to love you. While you were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for you. It means we've got to get comfortable with the fact that we are sin. We are sinners. We make mistakes. We're not perfect. Anybody here perfect? I, I may have missed. Okay. Then I didn't want to insult you. We are not perfect. We are flawed. We are indeed fallible. And I am amazed above amazement that God takes fallible people, messed up folk like us, people whose problems got problems, pulls us and says, I now have work for you to do. And you want to say, but God, now couldn't you, was there somebody else you could have sent? He said, sure. I chose you. You know, Job probably wanted to ask God that question. Satan comes in, says, you know what? I bet Job doesn't serve you, except for all the blessings you have. He said, have you considered my servant, Job? And Job was probably saying, go down and, yeah, you can do anything you want to do, Job. He's still going to serve me. Job may have wished that God had picked somebody else. The prophet of Nineveh. Lord, can you send somebody else, please? No, I want you to go. Go, Jonah. Lord, I don't really want to go. In fact, Lord, I ain't going. Now, you know, it is a dangerous thing to mess with a sovereign God. You're not going? No. Fine. It's okay if I don't go. Help yourself. All right. Glad we had this understanding. Jonah gets on a ship. Because I'm not going where God wants me to go. Nineveh, man, that, that's what kind of pastorate is Nineveh? Ship gets into a storm. Folk are throwing stuff overboard. 
They're tying ropes around the boat, trying to keep it together. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit lets the folk on the boat know, you know what? This isn't an ordinary storm. This storm looks like the wrath of God. They all start praying to their gods, checking with their gods, false gods as they were. And then they're checking. They say, hey, we all right. It ain't us. <laughs> and all eyes get fixed on Jonah. Jonah has to admit, it's me. Yeah, you know, I, he said I, I didn't have to go, but, I, you know, throw me overboard. They cast him overboard. Water gets calm. Fish comes along, specially prepared. Because God had anticipated Jonah's disobedience. Perhaps months, years before, had prepared a fish. What is my mission in life, Lord? You're going to swallow Jonah. <laughs> What's a Jonah? Fish swims through the oceans, eating everything along the way, getting bigger and bigger, until providence leads him to that point where Jonah splashes in the water. Fish come along and say, this is a Jonah. Swallows him. Doesn't eat him. Just contains him. And so Jonah goes for the e-ticket ride of his life. The e-ticket of disobedience. Until finally, the fish is commanded to spit Jonah up onto the beach. Jonah's don't taste good to fish. So he spits him up. There's a difference between letting him out and spitting him up. Essentially, Jonah came out with fish emesis all around him. Oh, de fish was the cologne he was wearing. When he hit the beach, when he got to the beach, what direction do you think Jonah went? Nineveh. God interposed in Jonah's life because God loved Jonah. He recognized that the pathway of disobedience, once acknowledged and once allowed to go on, would potentially be Jonah's ultimate destruction. And because he loved Jonah and loved the people in Nineveh, he got in Jonah's chest. He interrupted his, his comfort. He put him in the belly of a fish to protect him in the water and to give him time for a prayer meeting. And when Jonah had a one-to-one -one conversation with God, he allowed him to be vomited up on a beach without shower. He went rush. I understand why the folk in Nineveh knew he was from God. When Jonah hit that town, they said, what is this? And they listened from a distance because he was kind of, but they listened. And it says that the town of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. How long will we stand between two opinions? Let me close with this story. A fellow once wrote a, wrote a letter to a mail order house. And his letter read like this. Please send me the engine you show on page 878 of your catalog. If it's any good, I'll send you a check. About a week later, he got a, re a response from the catalog company. Please send us your check. If it's any good, we'll send you our engine.
I raise the question as we close, how long will we continue to buy our eternal futures when your faith account is marked insufficient funds? What can we buy with a bounce check of lack of trust? The wildness of God requires that we place our wisdom aside and humbly trust in the God of Abraham. Lord and Father, teach us this morning what it means to really trust in your word. We recognize that we are so prone to want to do our own thing. We have darling plans, cherished ambitions. Some of them have been given to us by you. Some of them have been substituted by the devil. Lord, help us to hear your voice, to walk in your footsteps, to say yes, even when our hearts cry out no until we learn that you are a God who can be trusted. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.